I'm David Plouffe. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. So, Steve, the, the sadness, the anger, the disbelief, I know I feel it. My family feels it. I think literally billions of people around the world probably feel it. What's that been like for you? I mean, and how do you compare this to other moments that you've either witnessed or in American history in terms of its impact on you? Um, I, I, the saddest day of my life, right, from an event that, that wasn't in, inside of my family was the Newtown Massacre. And so incomprehensibly sad after it. I know that President Obama felt the same way. I know you felt the same way about that. I, I haven't felt so sad about anything since that day, is watching that, watching the Capitol building of the United States, falling with hordes, with mobs, waving MAGA flags, storming it, vandalizing it, looting the offices. It's an attack on the people, the people of the United States. It's our house government of the people, by the people, for the people. And when it was done and it was over, you still had seven United States senators and more than half the Republican conference led by its autocratic leader, Kevin McCarthy, vote to decertify the election and to throw out, in essence, millions and millions of black votes so the person who lost the election could remain in power, I suppose, in perpetuity or until his ego was sated. So we're just at a very, very dangerous moment. But we've talked about this for many, many, many months now. And I think this was hardly unpredictable. The investigation about what happened, how the Capitol fell, how it was breached, the evident double standards and hypocrisies that bring up issues of racial justice into this debate, what would have happened? if that was 5,000 Black Lives Matter protesters, and we both know the answer to that. Hundreds of deaths. You know that. Hundreds of deaths. Hundreds of deaths. And we as a country are in a lot of trouble. We're in a very dangerous moment in the history of our country with someone who is delusional, unstable, unfit, who remains in command of the world's most powerful nuclear weapons arsenal at this hour. Well, Steve and I couldn't think about anybody better to talk to this week than presidential historian Michael Beschloss who will hopefully help us put some of these last few days into perspective. But before we get into it with Michael, I'm not sure I personally yet have come to grips with the significance of what happened this week. But as I wrestle with it, Steve, the one thing I am really disturbed about, uh, we're talking on Friday, Lindsey Graham and some members of the House Republicans now are saying, we just got to kind of move on here. We want to unify the country. Joe Biden's got to tell all the Democrats to stand down. And my view is, if next month, next year, next decade, we're still not focused on Trump's role in this, Mark Meadows' role in this, Josh Hawley's role in this, Ted Cruz's role in this, Kevin McCarthy's role in this, we failed as a country. The other thing, Steve, that strikes me is if it hadn't been for the violence, this would have kind of gone where most folks are saying, well, the Republicans are just doing their thing and they're kind of kowtowing to Trump. And yeah, a bunch of them did vote to you know, overturn the election, but they're, you know, ha, ha, ha. How do we ensure that this stain is not erased and everybody pays their appropriate price for their role in it? It's an awful hour. And Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley can't just continue to go on in the United States Senate. They need to resign. And there should be a consensus 
of Americans of all persuasions demanding their resignation for their disgrace, for their dishonorable lying, and the tremendous damage they've done to our democracy, which is so much more fragile than I think we all ever thought it was. I know you're as concerned as I am that so far there have not been enough arrests. Uh, McConnell and other congressional leaders say they're going to investigate the lapses with the Capitol Police, and that's all well and good. But if the people who led this, I mean, Donald Trump summoned these people to Washington. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz told him that they were going to overturn the election. Donald Trump literally moments before the Capitol was laid siege, encouraged them to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and do it. Hawley and Cruz have to resign. They have to resign. I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be talking about it and pushing for it months into the new year. You had Trump go and incite violence earlier this summer, and you had a kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, take his AR-15 driven by his mother, you know, cross state lines, shoot three people. And what happened? Killing two of them, right? He became a folk hero amongst the people who stormed the Capitol, who committed this act of violence against their country, this act of treason, betrayal. You know, there's a sickness right, that streams forth from the mouth of Mark Levin and Rush Limbaugh and Hannity and the lies and the conspiracies. And these people are sheep, they're weak, but they're incited, is that all of the focus cannot be just on the incited. It has to be on the inciters. And that that includes Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump, all of them. And understand the United States has been brought low by this man, hundreds of thousands of people dead unnecessarily, and this final travesty, this desecration of America in this week, just truly a terrible week, but not one where anybody who's paying attention should say that they're surprised about because you could have seen it coming from a mile away. Well, let's bring in our guest to this discussion. I'm thrilled on behalf of David and I to welcome Michael Beschloss to the podcast today. One of the most learned and wisest voices about America, our story, our history, our mistakes, our nobility, our grandeur, our failings. And I can't think of a better person to talk to this week as we ponder in disbelief the scenes of desecration taking place at the capital of the United States as it fell to a Trump-incited right-wing fascistic mob that penetrated the most sacred chambers of American democracy. So we're delighted to welcome Michael to the podcast today. Michael, good to be with you. Steve, love to be with you and David, and especially this historic week. So Michael, one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about these days is it just seems like with the way we get information, first it was the internet, now it's social media, everything seems smaller than it used to. We used to gather at a certain time to watch the same television news, we'd wait for the paper. Um, and I think you already see some Republicans suggesting that, you know, if we really want to unify the country, kind of got to forget what Trump did and what Hawley did and Cruz did and just move on. But put this in some context for us. I mean, it wasn't just the rioting. There are now many reports that there was attempts to potentially assassinate the vice president. They were looking for Senator Schumer's office, Nancy Pelosi's office. Put this in some context for us. The events that happened on Wednesday, the role that our sitting president played in them, 
I don't think there's a historical uh, analogy to them. But I think one of the struggles to keep the focus on what instigated it and then the actions that day is just the way we get information. And it's like, well, let's move on to something else. I mean, it is remarkable that 4,000 people have died each of the last three days from COVID, and it seems like it's in the background. So I would just love to you, there's nobody better in the world, quite frankly, to put what we saw this week in some historical context for our listeners than you. What we saw the other day is something that people will be hearing about in this country and reading about and talking about 100 years from now. Because this was not only a terrorist event, and we've had those, the British, as you both know, burned the Capitol in 1814. They did the same thing to the White House. A federal installation was attacked on Fort Sumter, which started the Civil War. We all lived through 9-11. There has been gunshot in the House chamber before from terrorists at the time of Truman, just after World War II, people who wanted independence for Puerto Rico. But what made this different was this was a terrorist attack that was instigated and incited by a president of the United States. President Trump gave that speech at the Ellipse to this mob that he had summoned to Washington by Twitter and in all sorts of other social media, he and people who were politically allied with them. And he literally says, We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And we're going to try and give... The Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. So the crowds go up to the Capitol. For some mysterious reason, they are let through police lines. They go into the Capitol. They swarm through the Senate chamber and the House chamber carrying Confederate flags, carrying guns, spouting slogans. One person was wearing a sweatshirt saying Camp Auschwitz. Another was wearing a sweatshirt referring to a slogan saying that the murder of six million Jews was not enough. This was you know, a nightmare not only in itself, but if you contrast that to everything we know about the American history that's taken place in the Capitol, it was completely sickening. But to this point, we really do not know who these people were, what their aim was. We have to know, were the members of Congress in physical danger? Was there some kind of intention to kill them, uh, including Vice President Pence, maybe other leaders, maybe Leader Schumer, maybe Speaker Pelosi? We do not know yet. Was there some thought that they might be kidnapped? There have been plots like that in American history, for instance, at the time of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Did they have the idiotic view that if they could grab those mahogany boxes that had the votes from the state electoral college electors, that somehow they could interfere with the choice of Joe Biden and somehow give Donald Trump a second term as president? We know that Donald Trump had deep involvement in it. You know, that is documented, but we have to know how far the planning and execution went. 
and how central he was to this coup d'etat slash terrorist attack on the Capitol and on the Congress. When you think about the momentous months in the history of the country, and I know it's fool's gold to look at a present event and try to give it a historical context in the moment. That being said, I think these are profoundly important historic months, the months of November and December since the election, because these were the months where American democracy as an idea was poisoned. And in the end, democracy requires faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system. But how do you contextualize what we saw? You know, Steve, if we were talking, let's say, five years ago, and we discussed this subject, I would have said, thank God there has never been a demagogue with contempt for democracy as president of the United States, because I would have said the president has so much power and influence, even as strongly as most people feel about democracy. If you've got a president who is against democracy and is willing to do a lot of things to expand presidential power, he can go very far. And so my view is that for the last four years, we've had a president, not philosophical because Donald Trump is not that bright or book read, but just out of almost raw instinct, who has contempt for democracy, doesn't understand it, and has wanted to expand his power. That's been the theme of this whole four years. You know, let's rewind the clock. Let's say that on the 3rd of November, Donald Trump had managed to get a legitimate second term as president and he had been elected. Imagine what the last two months would have been like. I believe he would have done a lot to expand his power, to increase authoritarianism, to reduce the rule of law, to abuse the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security. I think there is a very good chance that he would have done his best to try to shut down the free press with the help of an attorney general who was only too glad to help and things like that. We'd be living in a very different world right now if we were facing an America with Donald Trump about to serve a second term, and especially with a Republican House and Senate, which we do not have. Michael, I'd love you to kind of reflect on two things. So one, for the first time we've had a president who's really tested all the weak parts of the Constitution and rule yep. of law. And yep. I'd like you to reflect a little bit on that. But what strikes me, and Steve and I have talked a lot about this, and I think it's scary for people because people want to think that Trump leaves and it's all going to get better. And it's, it's clearly it's not. I mean, we just had almost two thirds of the Republicans in the House vote to overturn an election after the insurrection in the Capitol. Right. That's clearly most of the people running for president on the Republican side, and that campaign has started already. Right. Uh, are going to be saying the election was stolen. You know, COVID wasn't real. So the battle now, it seems, we're still going to have debates in Congress about size of government and tax cuts. As we should. We should. But it is less, I think, in terms of if we think about the arc of the country, the battle for the next few years, if not decades, is less about the traditional fault lines between two political parties. It is between the democratic wing of our country and the autocratic wing of our country. Right. And I'd just like you to speak to that. I don't want to scare people, but my view is the outcome of that battle is far from determined. I do think there's more people in this country who believe in the democratic side of that question. But all of the power right now, primaries, activism, social media, the propaganda wing is in the autocratic side of that question on the Republican Party. So just talk a little bit about how you see this unfolding using your historian lens. 
Well, let's compare it, for instance, to the 1930s and the 1940s and the possibility that Charles Lindbergh, who, as we know, was an anti-Semite and who was friendly to Hitler and fascism, was discussed as a possible presidential candidate in the 1940s, or Father Coughlin, the Detroit radio priest who was uh, serious about running for president in 1936, was a fascist himself. If someone like that had become president, they still would have become president in a different world from the one that we're living in today. Because in the 1930s, you still had news sources that were pretty much shared by everyone, radio news or trusted newspapers or trusted magazines that maybe got it wrong sometime, but everyone was essentially reading roughly the same page. And the other thing was that we were in an era when you had people who were members of Congress, by and large, with big exceptions, who knew what democracy was and they knew what going too far meant. That was the 1930s and the 1940s. In 2004, how many voters thought that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, the terrorist attack? There was a large group who did. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you tell me, David, during the Barack Obama administration, how many Americans thought falsely that he was born in Kenya? Yeah, about a third, about a third of the country. Okay, so you tell me now, here we are up to 2021, how many Americans, let's say six months from now, are likely to think that Donald Trump was legitimately elected president of the United States in 2020, and it was stolen from him. What would you think? Don't you think, Steve, at least 40 percent? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think roughly 80 percent of the Republican Party, whatever you want to devolve that number to, but it's at 40 percent at least, at least. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm saying. We're at a time that we have never seen before. There are some historians and others who have been saying it's like 1824 when Andrew Jackson claimed that the election was stolen from him and used that to become president four years later, that has nothing to do with the wilderness of mirrors that we are living in now. So what it means is that those of us who love democracy and want to defend it, and there are not enough of us, had better get used to the fact that a lot of the people in this country who can vote and can be active are believing things that have nothing to do with the truth. Exactly right. Exactly. So I'm just curious though, Michael. So Steve and I battled it out back in 2008 to decide who would win that presidential race and inherit a historically shitty and difficult situation. <laughs> I'm glad the two of you worked it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> so on November 4th, or certainly by November 7th, when the election was over uh, officially, Biden's got an economy in tatters, got a COVID crisis, a country that needs to be healed. Now we fast forward to this week, okay? Now you've got this incident. Just put into context, Michael, the challenge that Joe Biden, I mean, are we talking, is this in the same sentence as Roosevelt 32, Lincoln 60? I mean, is it even more challenging than that? Just talk about the scale of what he's inheriting. I think those are two very good years to mention. 1860, Abraham Lincoln had to come in and decide whether the North would wage a civil war against the South, which had seceded. That was not a solved question at that point, and he did not know quite what was going to happen. So, you know, that is a parallel to Joe Biden and the kind of basic, overwhelming decisions he has to make right now, or Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. High employment, banks closed, people suffering, as bad a crisis as there ever could have been in this country. Roosevelt was not a policy person. He was a great 
person at taking in a lot of views and trying to synthesize them. And that worked most of the time in the 1930s. Sometimes it did not. But here's the danger, David and Steve. When it doesn't work, that's exactly the moment we have to worry about the people that Steve was talking about who basically feed on mass misery. For instance, in 1932, there were a lot of people saying the reason that the nation is suffering from a Great Depression is bankers. In some cases, the anti-Semites were saying it's because of Jewish people in New York with international influences. There were a lot of people who believed that. Father Coughlin was on the radio once a week saying that exactly that, and he got millions of people to listen. So to bring this to Biden, if Biden is successful in dealing with the pandemic and the economy and restoring democratic processes and restoring at least a little bit of racial justice after only 400 years in which we have not had it, then things will probably be okay four years from now. But if those things are not solved and these monumental problems overwhelm him and the Democrats who now control the House and the Senate, you're creating a perfect breeding ground for very angry authoritarian people on the Republican side four years from now. And all I can say is beware of a situation like that. That's pretty damn scary. No, it sure is. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with Michael Beschloss. Welcome back to Battleground. Michael, I'd love your perspective on when you look at, and it wasn't just Trump, it was most of his party when they talked about the election, because you have all these members of the House and Senate who just won their election, right? So that's not the problem. It's a presidential election, which comes down to black voters for the most part in urban centers. Just talk about how much race is driving what we've seen over the last 60 days. And I think it's going to continue. If anything, it's going to intensify. We know they're going to try and intensify the voter suppression efforts. The legislature in Georgia is already talking about stripping election authority away from the secretary of state and giving it to the legislature. But so much of this is still based on that poisonous foundation of our race relations. So talk about that a little bit. I don't think that's gotten enough attention. I don't want to ask the questions here because I'm only the guest, but let me return you to election night 2012. How far were you standing, David, from President Obama? I was right there. I know where you're going with this. Okay. And, so um, yeah. the networks called the election for Barack Obama over Mitt Romney. Now, usually in a normal situation, the loser would immediately call the winner and say, I concede, I want to help you with the transition. I want to unite the country. How many minutes elapsed from the moment that the networks called the election for Obama and that Mitt Romney called the president? How many minutes would you say? You know, it was longer than it should have been. I will tell you this. This is not just to cover Obama and glory. He was the one guy who didn't care. He's like, it doesn't matter when he calls, it'll be okay. But yeah, we were definitely pulling our hair out. Okay, so Romney calls, and from very good sources I have heard, and this has been written about as well, so this is not some terrible revelation. Romney calls and tells the president, you got out your voters in Cleveland and Milwaukee. Is that correct? Yes, that okay. was his first day. What did he mean when he said that? Yes, well. What was Romney meaning? It makes me bummed out to say anything negative about Mitt Romney, but I think well, what, but we're talking about history here. Let's be honest. I think I think Mitt Romney was told by his team that he was going to win the election number one. 
Number two, they because, you know, we didn't have 100,000 people at our events like in 08. They thought that somehow that then was related to turnout. We were going to struggle with turnout. Our turnout was stronger in many areas than it was in 08. But yes, the, the message was basically all these black people surprised us and I would have so, won. Yeah. So number, let me ask two more questions, then I'll stop with a question since it's, it shouldn't be my job. Number one, did the black vote in Cleveland and Milwaukee make the difference in the 2012 election? No, not New York. No, America. of course not. All right. Mitt Romney, who was a person, I would say, you know, among those on the scale of racial justice, who was of relatively goodwill. His father, George Romney, as governor of Michigan, was a champion of civil rights. He was a Republican. He had been CEO of Rambler, the car company. He was always known for being ahead of the curve on civil rights. But even a person of goodwill like Mitt Romney, A, his immediate conclusion is, from what he said, unless you think I'm reading this wrong, number one, Barack Obama only won because he turned out the black vote in some cities. And number two, even this person who is of relative goodwill thinks that it's within the bounds of decency to say that to an incumbent president of the United States to his face, that essentially he only won because the black vote turned out. Anyone who wants to ask what's wrong with this country in terms of racial justice, ever since hearing that story, and I've heard it from many people, I've thought that that moment in 2012, this was not 1800, sort of captures it. This late in American history, you have a scene like that. Yeah, well, in the inaugural dais, January 20th, 2013, on the west front of the Capitol, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney's running mate, said the same exact thing to me. Congratulations, and you guys did an amazing job turning out the inner city vote. And did he have any idea what, what a racist he sounded like? Uh, you know, no, because I think it's been normalized. So black people have been t depending on people like Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, who were some of the best in re the Republican Party on this issue. Right, no doubt. For yeah. their rights. That's the problem. But give us some historical context, because if you, the, most of the Republicans in the Trump wing have been careful about not completely filling in the circle, right? But you, it is like those votes don't count as much as votes of rural whites. Absolutely. Well, and our electoral college underlines that. Right. But what are we going to do about this? Because it seems like until this gets, you know, remedied, it's a big piece of the puzzle here that's preventing us from making the progress we need to make. Meaning electoral college? Well, no, just that basically the votes of black citizens somehow can be maligned, somehow suggest that they were fraudulent, somehow suggest that they're not of equal worth. I'm going to let me tell you what we're yeah. going to do about it on this. And this is our point of view at the Lincoln Project. Our proposition is this, is you can't be a major American corporation that signs on to whatever statement in support of Black Lives Matter or releases your diversity and inclusion goals. And then at the same time, writes a $10 million check to the super PAC of the people that then use the money to advance a type of new Jim Crow. Exactly. And that's what that is, is that those members who were standing up were standing up to throw out millions of black votes and say, if not for these black votes, then obviously Trump would have won in a landslide. 
Now, I'm a New York Jets fan, so I feel comfortable saying this, right? Like, historically, that's that's like saying as a Jets fan, right? The Jets have won again so long as you don't count the first three quarters and most of the fourth and all of the games of the season. Right. It's a ludicrous proposition, right? But there's an accountability there. So the money that goes to the NRCC, the money that goes to Kevin McCarthy's Super PAC, the money that goes to Mitch McConnell's Super PAC has allowed for these type of messages, these type of tactics. And I think that we have to understand all of the combined elements of this, right? And the financiers of these movements, which is corporate America that are antithetical to their stated values, we're going to conduct a campaign very transparently, very publicly. We hope to defund out of some of these political committees tens and tens of millions of dollars. We intend to target pension funds. We intend to be robust about this in defense of democracy. But I do think that there is a dividing line in American politics. In the two presidential campaigns that I've been involved in, we argued very hyperbolically about the delta between 39.6% marginal tax rates and 35% tax rates. But now, not, not, not to mention a 15% carried interest rate. Right. You know, but now, right, the, now the issue is do you believe or do you not believe the American ideals for everybody? Everybody, everybody gets to participate in it. Is that everybody gets to enjoy the full fruits of citizenship? And obviously, we have a mass movement that's autocratic, that's tinged with fascistic markers and religious extremism that is hostile to democracy. I agree. And the other thing is that if you're a company that wants to endorse political leaders who are for fascism or who are for racist policies, Mm -hmm. you can do that as long as you have no shareholders and as long as you have no board members and as long as you're not financed by a bank and as long as you don't have customers, unless all those customers agree with those fascistic and racist policies. I don't know of any company defined by that. So that is one way that I think is going to have a lot of impact. Battleground will be right back. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with presidential historian Michael Beschloss. I'm thinking about this in the context in my lifetime as a moment of national humiliation. I turned 50 this year, so I was born in 70. Mm-hmm. Another tumultuous year. Right. Um, the fall of the embassy in Saigon, the images of the Iranian hostages. Mm-hmm. Am I missing one over the last 50 years? Because I, I think the images of the Trump insurrectionists inside the sacred Spaces of American democracy. I, I think it's the greatest images of national humiliation in my lifetime. And I can't think of one that exceeds that in my view. And then also, when you look historically, who's a more pernicious figure? Is it a Holly or is it a McCarthy? This is Kevin, not Joe, not Gene. This is Joe. This is Joe <laughs> McCarthy Joe, okay. in the in the Senate. When you look at the damage and the cynicism unleashed. I have a hard time saying it's McCarthy. Disabuse me. Josh Hawley has been given every privilege that someone could have in American society. 
He's the son of a banker. He's the son of privilege. He had prosperous parents. He had a wonderful education. Anyone in the United States should want to have the education that he had. He went to private school. He went to Stanford. He went to a great law school. He's had every connection, every advantage that an American can have. And how has he repaid it? He repaid it this week by putting our democracy in jeopardy of being destroyed. That's who this person is. His political ambition is more important than the preservation of American democracy. And if I had to think of something that an American leader can do that's absolutely at the bottom of the moral scale, I don't know how you can get lower than that. That's what I'm trying to probe you at. Is there anyone who's comparably cynical as him and Ted Cruz over the last hundred years? I mean, there's McCarthy, certainly, but like, who is in their stratosphere? I think Joe McCarthy is a perfect comparison because this is someone who, in 1950, was worried that he might not get reelected and grab the issue of anti-communism. And if you want to continue the parallel with 2021, McCarthy said, you know, why are we enmeshed in this war in Korea? We just won the World War II five years ago. It's happening because we've got secret communists in the Truman administration and elsewhere in our federal government that are giving the store away, that are betraying us to the Soviet Union. And McCarthy, who was this obscure senator from Wisconsin suddenly found that that issue took him a very long way. Did he believe deeply in this? No. Did he see this as a political vehicle? Yes. Who does that remind you of? Do you think Josh Hawley, who is clerked at high levels in our American judicial system, went to a great law school, was told to me by one of his professors, who is a liberal, who told me that this is one of the smartest students I've ever had, do you think he did not know in his heart that he was doing wrong this week, that he was doing something that was dangerous to democracy? The point is, he knew very well. You know, it would be one thing if he was just an idiot and didn't realize what the result of this could be. He was knowingly putting all of our families in jeopardy of an authoritarian system for his own political ambition. That's what a demagogue does. Michael, uh... Maybe there was a period in the uh, 19th century when most of the rest of the world, almost all the rest of the world, had ended their slavery practices and they were still intense here, that we've looked weaker. But is this the weakest America has looked to the rest of the world in our history? Well, it's been the weakest because our presidents have rightly made the point that America is a very powerful country, but the most powerful thing that we have is the power of our small d democratic example, what Thomas Jefferson called the contagion of democracy that we have tried to spread around the world. And we have always said, you know, until four years ago, new countries, developing countries should want to be like us. We have a wonderful system. George H.W. Bush would meet with Mikhail Gorbachev and would say, you should try to make the Soviet Union like the United States. You should have a stock exchange like ours. He even had Gorbachev imitate the office of the presidency that we have in the United States. Could you imagine something like that now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be decades, sadly, hopefully like one decade, not five decades, before anyone's going to listen to us about anything in regards to elections and democracy. And they're right to ignore us. I mean, I think we have to prove that. Uh, and the problem is, for that to be true, for us to retain our moral voice in these matters, 
the Trump era would have had to have been an aberration. And that's the thing we know. It's not an aberration. We are going to have an active fight in this country about free and fair elections for a very, very long time. Okay. Well, let me come back at you for a second. I think I agree with you in general, but I think it has a lot to do with the way that Americans and especially current Trump supporters look at Donald Trump in a year or two. Let's say hypothetically, and I'm not predicting this, but just for purposes of discussion, let's say he leaves office on the 20th of January, which I hope he will voluntarily. I'm still not sure that that will happen. But let's say he does and goes back to Mar-a-Lago. I think that there is a good chance that he is going to be besieged with dozens or hundreds of lawsuits, possible indictments, huge financial demands against him, to a point where he may be in very big trouble fairly soon. If that happens, let's say that Donald Trump is no longer seen as this great beloved figure of great probity by the people who have loved him for the last four years, what effect will that have on his movement? Michael, that's, I think that is the question. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest question for America and where you might get the biggest sorts of optimism is that Trump dissipates and no one leader, because I think mm-hmm. it takes a leader, right. replaces him. So you have some QAnon person. And- yes. It gets disaggregated and then it becomes weak because it does get disaggregated. Right. To me, that is maybe the most important question facing our country right now. Totally. because And especially because this is someone who has given signs that he intended to give his movement to his daughter or maybe to his namesake son. And now that is a lot less likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm very pessimistic on this. We had Jordan Klepper on last week from The Daily Show, and I thought his analysis was brilliant. And he spent a lot of time at these rallies. And people have assumed an identity that they find their community now through politics. Um, you, know, you see some of the people that are being interviewed, they're going to go to prison. We talk about the nexus between mental illness and mass shootings, for example, but we got a real mental illness manifested through politics problem in this country where vulnerable people are egged on, incited, by the lying, by the conspiracies, people Let's are lonely. Let's go to the president. How about when those two things are present in the yeah, president of the United absolutely. States in a way we've And there's seen. four things that have to come together for an autocratic movement. It's not enough for there to be a charismatic leader. There's got to be a mass. The mass is there. It's not enough, though, right? You need the propaganda, the control of information flow to the mass, financed, But you also need the cynicism of the elite. Stuart Stevens talks about this all the time as he was writing his book. He read the book of the person who was most responsible for Hitler's rise to power right in Germany, which was von Papen, Mm -hmm. the conservative politician who in 1953 was still trying to justify his coalition with Hitler on the basis. But you don't understand. Right. It would it would help to constrain him. It would have been the Bolsheviks. Yep. The Bolsheviks would have been in charge. Mm-hmm. And so the justification, you know, that you're seeing with the Lindsey Grahams and all of this, the, the absurd protestations of Marco Rubio trying to thread the middle line. I mean, David, you and I have spent time in meetings like this. I mean, they're, well, Marco, you should sit behind the Senate desk as you release this recording. Try to look like a statesman, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, the affectation of it all. Or maybe Josh Hawley, when you're on the Senate floor, you should always speak into the camera so that we can use it for commercials. At the end of the day here, you're going to see low turnout Republican primaries. And when you have 15, 16% turnout in a primary election, I'll win a lot of money betting on the autocratic side because they're going to steamroll Republicans. So I don't, I don't think his hold is going to break. The dominant feature of this era of politics has been cowardice. Cowardice of people who know better. I mean, it's so antithetical to the American character. The whole idea of the founders was Alexander Hamilton always warned we might have a bad guy as president. We might have a demagogue. And people like James Madison said, well, that's okay because that person will be constrained by the courts or by members of Congress. But Steve and I talked about this on a podcast, Steve. I think it was Mike Duhame. You, you look at these members of Congress, to your point about cowardice, they're worried about losing a primary. And the thing that really strikes me, and I think it is most pronounced now than it's ever been in American history, where you have this many people who serve in Congress, who the thing they fear is losing and leaving Congress, and particularly House members, like it's a shitty job. You're up every two years. Many of them have to fly back and forth all the time when that, you know, even now during the pandemic. So speak to that a little bit, because I think that that is what's driving so much of this. That's a big part of the problem, because as you both know, the founders and the founders, a lot of things wrong with them and a lot of the things that they thought were wrong, especially those who supported slavery. But their idea was that a member of Congress would be like Cincinnatus leaving his plow. Yes. You'd go in and serve for a few years. You'd go back to your plow. And that was your life rather than sitting in some steak restaurant next to the U.S. Capitol talking to lobbyists and never dreaming that you could ever live without this ever again. Ah. They've got golden handcuffs, which are basically their style of life and their fame and their power and their proximity to money, right? Mm. What an appalling time we live in. Well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been really an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks, Michael. It was great to talk to you all Thank day. you both for what you have done to help everyone preserve democracy the last four years. I thank you. My wife and children, thank you. Well, we thank you. But listen, you stepped out. And I know that must have been an excruciatingly hard thing for you to do, mm -hmm. just given the stakes. And your voice has been really important. But I, I think like Steve's point about Holly and Cruz, this is like one of the many battles. Like if six months from now, we're still not talking about this and these guys aren't paying a price, we failed as a country. And I very much worry that we're going to fail. And unfortunately, we're in a period where people have very short memories. We have to make sure that every single person who has worked for Donald Trump, been an accessory of everything that's happened uh, over the last four years, and the near-death experience that we have had, especially this week, anyone involved with that or responsible for that, every American has to know their name. Thanks so much to Michael Bachelot for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jess Williams did research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.